stay hungry, stay foolish. The Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and transfer funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. In today's episode, our guest argues that we humans owe our special status to our ability to imagine the future and recall the past, escaping the perpetual present that all other animals live in. Today is act one of a three act show. And in act one, we'll discover the awakening where humans had this dawn of cognitive ability that gave us the ability to mentally time travel. It is a great pleasure to welcome back the author and friend of the innovation show of stories, dice and rocks that think. Byron Reese, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. It's great to have you back. And you'll see I have the Reese library behind me, the ones that I have. I have three copies of this brilliant book as advanced reader copies. That means there's two up for grabs for our audience. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and watch out for the clips that we share on LinkedIn. Behind me, I have there as well the fourth age. We've done that in the past. I had hoped to do a part two with Byron. And then he goes and he writes this other book. And he's put right on my list again. So absolutely brilliant book. I'm so happy to bring you this book. Very kind to say that. Thank you. I absolutely mean it. And I love your storytelling. I love the tongue in cheek humor. You bring us on a great journey. You tell great stories. And it's fun along the way as we educate ourselves. So I want I wanted to start with a term that I loved that you mentioned in the book, the perpetual present, I mentioned it in the introduction, that is enjoyed by other earthly creatures. And I thought we would set context for the book with a quote you have from the book from Borges, who said, except for man, all creatures are immortal, and they are ignorant of death. I thought that was a good way to start and give context to this great book. Thank you very much for that. I mean, it's a controversial idea. I'll start with that, which um, is that animals don't know that there's a future and a past. Uh, and if you think about it, why should they? they? They're not real things. There's no such thing as the future or the past. Like they're not anything that really exists. They're mental constructs we have. I, I spend a lot of time in the book making the case that, that they don't, because what I'm trying to figure out in the book is what makes us different. And so if, that's what I'm looking for, ways we're different than animals. Because in one sense, we're very much like them, right? We have these animal bodies and all of that. But in another sense, we're not at all. We're almost like aliens because we have cities and literature and all this stuff, and they don't. Um, the question about whether animals are, in fact, stuck in time uh, has been well studied. And it appears, I think, to be true. Uh, you can find exceptions maybe to the tune of a few hours, like creatures that can plan for a few hours in the future, maybe. But you're not going to sell any of them a 401k, or I guess that's not a an Irish thing. You're not going to sell them an investment vehicle for retirement, and because uh, you know, they don't they don't think like that. And so here we are, these creatures that can think about the future and the past, and I think that's made all the difference. And you do a great job in the book of of explaining that because we've had brilliant guests on the show in the past, like Franz Duval, who talked about animals and the intelligence of animals. Also, 
it's not that that's in dispute in the book. And I want to make sure that's clear for our audience. It's not that you're trying to debunk in any way, but you're just trying to paint that something happened to us. We had this great awakening. And that's what the difference was. It wasn't aliens <laughs> coming along to Earth, as you also uh, explore at a very high level. It wasn't that either. And you tell us, and we'll get to that in a little while. But I thought we'd start with some of the questions you po pose right at the start of the book. Because as I mentioned in the introduction, the book is broken into three parts. I'm hoping we'll have three acts together as well for for the show we'll do part we'll do definitely do two parts. But the first act started 2 million years ago and brings us right up to 50,000 years ago. And to ignite us here to fire and kindle our minds, you posed the following questions. How did we come to think about the future? What made us different? How did we have this ability to recall the past and think about the future? How did we start thinking in language, thinking in language, and then vocalizing what we thought? And how did we develop mental stories that enabled us to imagine multiple different futures? The answers to these you tell us is the tale of how we came into being how we came to be something very different from the other animals and creatures on this planet. So maybe we'll start there with Homo erectus. And uh, as you pronounce in the book, you gratefully give me the pronunciation here, the Ushulian hand axe. That's because I had to like watch a bunch of videos to find out how it said. You know, I, I write my books. Uh, I, I, I think my readers are very much like me. It's what I'm always imagining uh, as a person I would love to like go have uh, coffee with and hang out with. And and I like to be able to say, hey, guess what I've learned? Like, guess what I've figured out lately? And then hear the same thing from them. And and so uh, I, I I very much want to write the books like I, I like I went and did a bunch of this like research and I've tried to put it together for you in a way. So I had to figure out how to pronounce it. And I love this story. I, I have a, a, a wonderful editor, and I told her this story about the Ashulian hand axes. And then a, a month later, I mentioned it, and she said, there's not a day that has gone by that I have not thought about that. And the story is this. Um, there were these creatures, uh, Homo erectus, who lived about a million and a half years, 1.6 million years. Uh, and they are you know said to be our forebears. We said to descend from them. And they were a highly successful creature, right? They lived a long time and they were all over three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And they had one tool. It's called the uh, Shulian hand axe. And it looks like a big arrowhead, uh, but with kind of in a teardrop shape. You'd hold it in your hand and you could do things with it. And the mystery of them, the weird, and by the way, there are so many of them because, you know, they were around for 80,000 generations. There's so many of them that you can buy one on eBay for um, a real tool used a million years ago for something like, you know, $100. If, uh, if I really had my game on, uh, you know, I told you about wearing the pin. I have one here of a, of a, of a book. And if I really had my game on, I would have had an axe, man. I would have had uh, it on there. <laughs> so the, the story is uh, over that 80,000 generations, these tools didn't ever change. And that's weird for three reasons. One uh, you would think as they spread around the world, they would change because climate's different, right? And two, you would think they would change because they're getting smarter. And they look at it and they go, you know, this would work better if 
But even if those weren't true, you would think it would change because even if every erectus copied their parents' hand axe, they would drift like the telephone game where it just gets a little different each time. But if I were to show you two Acheulean hand axes made a million years apart and said, which is older, it would be hard to tell. Experts only date them within 500,000 years. So what does that tell you? I think it means um, this object was not a technological object and it was not a cultural object. It was a genetic object. And what, a, and what that means is that the way a bird will go build the same nest, wherever you release it, Africa, Asia, or Europe, it's going to go build the same nest. And his children are going to build the same nest and their children are going to build the same nest. And the beavers, beaver dams are going to build the same ones. It's hard-coded in them. And that's what I think it was with the hand axe. Uh, because how else do you, do you explain 80,000 generations of no change in this thing? Because you think about us, we went from, you know, first uh, heavier than air flight and Kitty Hawk to the moon in three generations. We went from, um, from the very first writing to, to Shakespeare in 125. We went from the very first coin to our financial system, our world in 250 generations. They went 80,000 generations and never changed it. And so that's kind of the lead into the book. It says those things weren't anything like us. Those were beavers and birds. Those were animals in a literal sense, in a way we aren't. So what happened to us? And that's the setup in chapter one. And you set it up beautifully. And, and just to give it more credit than the story here does, you go into all the research and the stories, you mentioned the nests there as well, that, that really made it clear to me. And I, I'm going to give you feedback as we go, because because that really, really helped. And I'm sure that's why your editor said it really helped her because thinking about it as a genetic part of you makes it go, ah, now I get it. So thank you for that. That was really helpful. But another thing you talk about then, so jumping forward to only 50,000 years ago, we had another great awakening, which was, well, just like the axe was used, all of a sudden, there was paintings everywhere in different disparate parts of the planet. What the heck happened there? Yeah, that's a strange one, isn't it? Because imagine you went 1.8 million years of these tools that never changed. And then one day, uh, the archaeological evidence stops showing those. 200,000 years ago when Erectus died out, they're gone. And then about uh, 50,000 years ago, just to choose a number, you start getting cave art. And if, if, if you were to ask, like, what do you suppose the first cave art looked like? I would have said, well, I bet it was stick figures, you know. And then after some amount of time, they drew a triangle on one for a dress or something. I don't know. But very primitive. And then eventually, but that isn't what we see at all. What we see in places like the, the caves of Chauvet, uh, which are among the oldest cave art we have, uh, we, we have beautiful cave paintings. And I don't mean beautiful in the context of uh, the time. I mean, they're beautiful. Like, uh, they're just really beautiful. I, I hate to just say, use that word over and over. And then you say, well, they weren't just pretty. They actually had a technical expertise about them. For instance, the painters in Chauvet 
uh, needed black. And of course they have charcoal in abundance. You could just pick up burnt wood and use it, but it was like, uh-uh, it's not black enough for us. So they used a mineral called house mite, which you have to heat to 1600 degrees to get it to turn into a black pigment. And the closest source of it was 140 miles away. Then they would take that and they would make paint and then they would mix animal fat in it. So it stuck better Then they would mix talcum talc in it. So they could extend it and make it more Then they clearly had to build scaffolding because uh, some of these are way up high and they incorporated them in the contours of the, the rock to give it depth. They, they painted the animals around the walls with eight legs. It would be four that were vivid and four that were shadowy. So then the flickering of the light, the animals were seemingly running. And all of that was the first art. And then, and boy, we found that cave. And I like to say we, like I was in on it. Uh, humans found that cave. Chauvet and his friends found that cave. And uh, it had been sealed off by an avalanche. And it, you could still see the footprints and the dust of the people that had lived there. Like you could look and see them. And like, and that was the first. And, and at that same time, same time period, we find the first musical instruments, uh, flutes, which are a complex thing, and uh, with seven-note scales that can play music written by both Chopin and Taylor Swift, two names you seldom hear used together. And then at that exact same time, we find figurative art for the first time, art that represents something else as opposed to just circles or squiggles. We start finding that. So somehow, none of these things had precursors. None of them had things that were like early form somehow we just like emerged on the scene like this and you think about that and compare that to erectus making the same tool for eighty thousand generations and, and and you say aha that's a different that's a different sort of thing and so you ask the question what happened uh it's widely believed um this isn't my my thing that there was an event uh, that caused people uh that caused us to have these superpowers uh, where it happened. Exactly. It goes by a lot of different names. Harari writes about it. Um, Jared diamond writes about it. A, a lot of people have written about it. There, there's disputing about like where exactly it happened. And was it 50,000 years ago or 70 or hundred or whatever, but something happened. I'm of the opinion that it happened. Uh, I think it's distinctive characteristic was likely speech. And I'll, I'll mention that again in a minute. Speech, unfortunately, is not something that leaves fossils. What we what we have to do is look around and say, well, there are these creatures, and they're explaining why they have to go 140 miles to get house mite and burn it at 1600 degrees and then mix it with talc and then build scaffolding. They, they have to have language, right? Like, they don't have to. But I mean, I, I think, and then like, what is that? It's a flute. Oh, look, I can play music. What is that? Oh, I carved it. It's to do all of that and not have language. So a lot of people associate it with the creation of language. And and what you hinted at, and, and I'll pause for a breath here, what you hinted at is that we when we got language, the main purpose of language isn't communication. That's what we use it for, we think. But its real main purpose was that it is a stuff of thoughts. Imagine trying to think without the formality of a language without that construct, uh, you would essentially be an animal. And that isn't speculation. I, I include a quote from Helen Keller where she talks about what her life was like, what her inner life was like before her teacher came and taught her to communicate. So blind, unable to hear, 
um, unable to speak at that point. Uh, she said, I did not realize I was a thing that was different than the universe. Like I didn't realize I was a me and it was a, it. I actually didn't have a concept that there was something called time. I didn't know like this is soon and this is like, and then I learned to communicate. And then in that moment, I became conscious. Like those are the words she uses and it's just wonderful. And I think what happened is we got this language. And one of the incredible things about language is I'm, I'll go down this rabbit hole very quickly, which is we know of a lot of different languages, 8,000, give or take, and they all have certain things in common. You could argue that they all descended from one language. I, I would I would probably bet on that or multiple times. I, I don't, I mean, it's not that important, but they all had these certain characteristics. They... Um, even languages that have as few as 300 words, 300, 400 words, it's a whole language. They all have these characteristics. You have to be able to uh, refer to things in the future and the past. They all do that. And you can refer to things that aren't present, that are distant. And so I think well, not only did we get language and the ability to think, but that rewired our brains. And now all of a sudden, everything that's implicit in a language, we were able to do in our minds. And that's where I think we started thinking about the future and the past. Loads of thoughts. Loads of stories going on in my head here. I'm thinking in story. One one was, and I'll just say this to our audience, is next time you're going to the fridge and maybe, or maybe it's the treat cabinet where you've hidden the chocolate. Think think of the story you're thinking about. Should I, should I not? What would happen? Oh, the beach is coming up. What will I do on the beach? What will I do with that swimsuit, etc.? That's what Byron's talking about. We think in story, we create these stories. And as we'll get to later on, they have a profound impact on everything from society, the superorganism of the agora, etc, that we'll get to. So just want to plant that little seed there. The second was when you mentioned about the the depth of the, the darkness, it's like, so these primitive humans, standing around in a cave i can imagine like one standing there going nah it's not black enough we need <laughs> we we need blacker it's not it doesn't it doesn't capture the contours of the shadow <laughs> like that's what happened but it's like 140 miles away it's like all right do it do it steve jobs <laughs> right so i i i'll tee you up here for the next part because you say the, and this is again it's it's the it's how it's concurrent. It's it's across the planet at the same time in dis disparate parts. Although people will will say it is is so fascinating. And by the way, I I read um, I lived in the southwest of France for a year when I was like twenty one near the Basque country, and they would they would <laughs> they would challenge that their language is like no other. So I just I have, oh did I mention them in the book? You did. You did. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. They uh, they have an, a language which famously has no antecedent antecedents. Uh, they may or may not be the originators of the negative blood type. As a person with negative blood type, I don't know why I happen to know that. And some people believe uh, that uh, maybe they're part of uh, the descendants of Neanderthals, but their language is so old that there were. I don't think I put this in the book. Their word for a uh, hammer or something like that is rock. Like even after all these years, like, a, you know, uh, the hammer is a uh, go, go fetch me the rock. Uh, because it's like, that is how long it has been. 
By the way, I, I played with, I, I, I was in the set of West of France playing professional rugby. I played with a few Basques and some of them looked like Neanderthals. So <laughs> as did I back then, I've, I've uh, matured a little bit now. But I'll tee you up because th this next part is beautiful. A, a quote I pulled was, again, this, this like sudden awakening across the planet. You say concurrent with the emergence of music and art, there was also rapid technological innovation new techniques were used to make tools and the tools themselves became more specialized antler ivory and bone were increasingly used to make ever more sophisticated tools and jewelry we frequently find artifacts from this period constructed from multiple materials sourced from widely separated locations executed with multiple technologies the fact that technology all came along at once that the art emerged fully formed suggests something dramatic happened and it wasn't as you say as terence mckenna said <laughs> some uh, some some mushrooms who grew out of some dung i had somebody ask me about that yesterday uh about this the so-called stone date theory so to touch on a lot of that like the story you told just now about how um when you go to the the treat cabinet and you're trying to remember whether or not <clears throat> when you go into the treat cabinet and then you're running these scenarios in your head those are the stories that uh they don't seem like stories but that's how it all started uh, and and what's important about them is not only are you thinking about the future but you're doing it by calling upon memories of specific events, which animals don't do either. Uh, it's called episodic memory. And your dog, like if you teach it to sit, does not remember all the times you like said sit and gave a treat. It has what's known as a procedural memory. It knows how to do it, but it doesn't remember these specific things in the past. Uh, and then you talked about the concurrent nature of it. And that's a big mystery. So we find by far more painted caves and older ones in Western Europe than anywhere. And for the longest time, that's all we had. And so it seemed reasonable to assume that maybe that's where uh, this happened. But then lo and behold, it, it, Europe has two things going for it. One, um, a lot of the areas that back then would uh, have not been underwater. You know, it's, it's mountainous enough that there's still lots of areas that would have been above the water 50,000 years ago. And so they, they still remain. But uh, second, there was just more archaeology done there. And so now we've started finding caves in other places that are contemporary within, you know, a couple of thousand years. Uh, and we're going to find more. And so it appears, it appears this happened all over the world at, at once. Maybe it didn't. Maybe what happened is somebody had this mutation and they got speech and they got the ability to plan for the future and all of that. And for a long time, they didn't have anybody to talk to, right? They were the only ones with it. So all they could do was think like, hmm, hmm. But then three generations later, their band of 120 kin now all have it. And boy, they are like super powerful like, well, they could do something and maybe they just spread very quickly. Like in, in 2000 years, maybe they just went everywhere and who knows where they began. Um, we don't know. We don't know. Something happened. It was dramatic. It probably, I think happened to one person. Maybe it didn't. And, and, and if you brought those people forward in time to today, they would function perfectly fine in society. Whereas if you brought an erectus forward, 
Yeah. They'd just be sitting around making that hand axe all day long every day. You get home from work and it's just made another hand axe. It's like, oh, well, okay, good job. So. That's better than your one yesterday. Yeah, it's like it was, right. this guy, this but guy. But it isn't. It isn't. That's the problem. It isn't any better than the one yesterday. It's like a nest the one tomorrow the won't be any better. I didn't put this in the book, but we think that if, if you were to sit down and try to make a hand axe and you're working on it the way they would have, it's the same region of your brain that uh, musicians use today with like the percussion and the hitting and the rhythm and the this and the that. And so it might be that that's a little bit of a, a genetic artifact left over in us uh, from our Machulian hand axe making days. Brilliant. I love it, man. And uh, this, this is what this book will give for you. And it's, it's peppered with research, many papers that Byron has studied as well. So it brings you in all kinds of directions on a, on a great journey. But I thought we'd come back to the primary reason why we, we developed language. It was communication in our own heads first. And this is an extremely important point of Act One. And I thought we'd go a little bit deeper on that, if you wouldn't mind. It's funny, when I finished Act One, so a book is 80,000 words. When I finished Act One, it was 50,000 words. Uh, so 20,000 words had to come out of it that are like sitting on my hard drive. Every one of them is like a drop of my blood. I was like, ah, it's killing me here. Um, so uh, sometimes I might go back and forth between things that are in the book and things that aren't. And that's, that's why. So uh, to you're right. We, we get language. It's this mental construct that allows us to think. It gives us uh, displacement to think about things far away. It gives us a future in the past in a way to, to, to think about that. So I thought where we'd go would be where you talk about the link between language, superorganisms, beehives and emergence. I love that part of the book. And I thought that our audience would love to hear about this. Next book is all about that. The next book is about Agora. That's the one I'm working on uh, right now. But it's introduced in, in this book. And so, um, yeah, let's start, like, imagine you've got five people who now have this capacity for speech, and their whole group does, and so they can talk to each other. And imagine that's five, five people, and they decide they want mammoth for dinner. They're going to take down a mammoth. So uh, they, they get together and they go, okay, how are we going to do this? And one of them says, well, I'll tell you what, uh, you climb the tree and you two hide behind those bushes and, and you go and like distract the mammoth and then we uh, do this and that. And then as the plan starts to unfold, they're yelling at each other. No, 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 go over there faster, faster. No, no, he's getting away, he's getting away. Right mm -hmm. now. What the mammoth is fighting is not five people. From the mammoth's point of view, it is one creature that has uh, 10 arms, 10 legs, but one brain. I mean, like, just think about that. Like, it's functioning like a single creature with a brain that has a plan and, and all the various, and, and boy, to the mammoth, that's terrifying because it's not a contiguous creature it's like part of the creatures there and part is there and part is there but it's just one thing um that is kind of like uh well i think it's uh, what we call a superorganism so superorganisms are uh a, a well-established thing uh 
that uh, people generally agree exist, but have uh, varying opinions about what, what they are in the end. So you think about a bee, the example you gave, uh, bees um, get together in groups, beehives of 40,000 bees. When I was a kid, I used to raise bees. Did I put that in the book, by the way? Yeah, I got to tell this story. It's a good story. So I was a Boy Scout and I was a nerd and I went to Boy Scout camp. And when you're at Boy Scout camp, you take uh, merit badge classes to, to learn woodcraft and and then you, uh, you you get your merit badge. And I'm reading down the list of merit badges, you know, and but I and I come to one nerdy merit badge. They offer a merit badge on bookkeeping. And I think, man, what a nerd I am. I come to Boy Scout camp and I'm going to go get a bookkeeping merit badge. And so I show up and there's five other nerdy Boy Scouts there. We're all ready to learn bookkeeping when we are told it was a misprint and we are all enrolled in beekeeping. Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> it's a true story, like every word of it. So I fell in love with beekeeping. I came home and uh, got a beehive and started raising bees. Uh, the other kind of superorganisms are ants. And had there been a merit badge that was misprinted, uh, I don't know what it would be, anatomy or something, uh, and it was ant raising, I would have said that. Pants collection. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. A misprint of that one, but I, I didn't. So I know less about ants than I know about bees. So the bees come together in this hive. And the hive is thought as a superorganism. It's thought as one creature. Like, just think about that for a minute. There's a lot of old lore around that. If the beekeeper dies, for instance, somebody's supposed to go outside and tell the bees, like, the beekeeper's dead. You're not going to see him anymore. And you're supposed to drape the beehive with black cloth and all of that because the beehive's like, where's the keeper? Like, somehow it knows. Um, now, what's important about a superorganism is it takes on abilities that none of the components have that's called emergence and i'll talk about that in a minute but it's really a fascinating thing because bees are cold-blooded animals they cannot regulate their own body temperature i you could go out in cold weather and pick them all up and bring them in the house and when they warmed up they would be fine again now beehives on the other hand are warm-blooded they regulate their own temperature to really 98 to 37 celsius to us uh, but it's a coincidence if the beehive's too hot, they cool it down, they fly off and get some water and they spread it around and it evaporates and cools it down. If it's too hot, they uh, start flapping their wings and getting air to circulate. And the, the fascinating thing about how it self-regulates, and this is like I'm deep in the whole book, like, well, how does the hive do that? If all the individual bees are pretty dumb and operating alone, how do they do that? And what happens is, Every bee has a slightly different tolerance for heat. So the temperature in the hive goes up just a little bit. And there's only one bee going, man, it's hot in here. And all the other bees are like, yeah, I'm fine. And he goes, no, no, I'm hot. And so he starts, she starts flapping her wings to get, and then some other bees are like, you know, it is kind of hot in here. And they join in and then some more bees, and then it cools down. And then the bees are like, yeah, it's not that hot anymore. I'm going to stop. And, uh, and that's how they do it. Like no bees in charge. Nobody's saying, okay, you three just because bees have different preferences for temperature. Um, so the hive has uh, one of the 
earmarks of a superorganism is the individual parts can't survive on their own anymore. If, uh, if I, you know, if you take a bee out of the hive, it, it, it can't live on its own. You, by the way, are very similar to that. You're a superorganism. If I took you apart a cell at a time, your cells have lost their ability largely to live on their own. Uh, but it's interesting because to use the beehive analogy, if I took all the bees out of the hive, there, there's no beehive anymore, right? If I took you apart a cell at a time, like I can still point to all of your cells, but the creature that was you vanishes. Like maybe it wasn't even there to begin with. Like what was it? not anything real it's 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 something that happened because all these parts got together and that's what the hive is it's something that happens because all the parts get together um so all of this is uh based on the notion of a, of something called emergence emergence is like the coolest idea uh, you know in, in in simple english it's when a whole takes on characteristics different than its parts. People often say it's sort of a two plus two equals five, but it isn't. It's nothing like that. It's a two plus two equals something completely different. It's not you get a you get a, a benefit by adding two plus two, a little bonus, and it's it can do more because it's like no, it it gets different characteristics. It changes. And every level of complexity you have sitting on another level, new complexity emerges and new superorganisms created. So presumably 10,000 beehives in a field would be something different. So you are, you know, a bunch of cells that came together and made you, a bunch of people can get together and make a city. A city is kind of like a superorganism, right? Like, Nobody decides how much, how many groceries to bring in. There's nobody in charge of the city. Like every restaurant reorders and every grocery store reorders. And nobody decides where the Ubers and the taxi cabs need to be. Individually, they're like, you know, I was getting a lot of calls up there and I was doing, individually, everybody's doing their thing. But the city takes on characteristics that no people have. And that's what a superorganism is. I think that what happened is uh, when we got speech, humanity became a uh, humanity that communicated with each other became a superorganism, like those, those five people trying to take down that mammoth, they became a single entity. And I call it Agora. Agora is an old Greek word for like the town square where everybody got together and did all the commerce and sued everybody and argued about everything. I mean, it's just like, energy and buzz of being human was that took place on the Agora. And, uh, and that's the super organism. And what I tried to do in this book is introduce it and talk about how it was born and how the stories it would tell itself changed as humanity matured. And the next book is asking, can you understand human history better if you Start by saying we aren't cells. I mean, we aren't individual autonomous agents. We're cells and something else, either metaphorically or literally. You can choose either one. But uh, it, it says things like, well, you know, people don't like war if there always seems to be war. Like somehow we don't want it, but does Agora want it for some reason? 
and that's what the next book tries to answer. So that's Agora. And then yeah. I'll say, if you want me to, we can talk about like those early stories and the, the, uh, the constellation, the bear with the tail and all of that. Yeah. Let, let's, let's come to that. If you, if you wouldn't mind, we'll build towards it. Cause, uh, um, I, I love the build up to it as well, which is fantastic. But, uh, you know, just to say about about Terence McKenna and Paul Stamets uh, about the mushrooms as well, because I, I've read their work, and one of the things they both said was that, like, because the, uh, Stamets' book is fantastic on on psilocybin and mushrooms, essentially, and he he says that they are our elders. They have survived on this planet much much longer than us. That we share so much DNA as well. But I wanted to, to first think of that and then go, well, ants as well, or beehives, they are, as you say in the book, they've taught us, they've developed or they've, in, they've created agriculture, but they've also created, in a way, they, there's so many lessons in that. And we had the great Jeffrey West, uh, former director of the Santa Fe Institute on the show for a multi-part episode like today as well. And that whole idea of, of emergence and complexity there's so much to be learned from the animals around us. One of the things I wanted to share with you, because it sparked to my memory was, you, you know, when you said there about one small change has a dramatic effect across, you know, complexity, etc. Outside my house, there, I had planted these rhododendron uh, tr uh, plants, and they the the green fly, uh, absolute aphids love rhododendron. So they were riddled with these. And then all of a sudden, after Ant Day, this this every time every year, the Ant Day came along. There was ants everywhere, and the ants farm the aphids. So what they do is they start to ward off anything that tries to come near the aphids, including humans. When I try to come near, they'll sting you because it's their cattle. And I was like, "Oh, this is just incredible!" And the only way to actually get rid of the the aphids was actually to either spray and kill the colonies, etc., or else block up the colonies and therefore i was like kind of going well that's going to have an effect somewhere else in the, in the complexity of things and i just thought that that was absolutely fascinating that there's so much to be learned from nature in itself and perhaps you have some thoughts on that because i'm sure it's connected to the agora and the superorganism yeah like i don't even know where to start with it there's so much you know i was reading about um about one stump in the Amazon rainforest that researchers came and they just decided they were going to find everything living on this stump. They found 46 species of ant, uh, more ants than more ant varieties than in all of the British Isles, uh, right there in one stump. And uh, you're entirely right. Like we don't even know. The fascinating thing about superorganisms is they don't know what they're doing, right? Like they don't, the parts are like simple bots, simple little robots that maybe know how to do 10 or 20 things. Like um, if a group of, let's say there's a bunch of ants and they're, 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 they're one colony and they're, they're split up into three jobs. You know, there's ants that uh, go forage and there's ants that guard and there's ants that do something else. I don't know. Um, and then what happens is every ant meets another ant when they're walking they rub antenna basically they say what, what's your job and the other one answers and says what's your job and they answer and they have something in them that if uh if they go too long without 
meeting an ant with some one of those jobs, they just start doing it. Like the level, you know, gets too low and they go, okay, that's what I'm doing. In beehives, a bee leaves, lives eight weeks. And the first two weeks, they have a certain set of jobs. And the next two weeks, they have different ones. And the next ones, they have different ones. And they age very quickly through them. And they get these organs that vanish because they don't need them anymore. If you go into the beehive and you steal all the young ones, the old ones get young again. And they go back to those jobs. And then they age out again. And so they're all these little robots. And the the smarts come like your like your cells. None of your cells know they're part of you, right? Like they're not like, uh, he got his finger. All right, platelets go clog that cut. Like nothing. They just live in their lives, you know, marrying and being given into marriage and having families, and then they don't even know you're there. And uh, and that's the mystery. How do smart things, how do dumb things interacting with each other with simple rules? form complexity and that's uh i don't know that's what the next book is about beautiful man i'm looking forward to it already and yeah you uh, and me both yeah awesome i keep getting up and um walking downstairs and saying to my wife i'm never writing another book like i'm going to finish this book (laughs) never doing this again like i'm never doing it again it's just killing me of course she just smiles she knows or yes exactly yeah but I think I think it's so useful to think about the planet as a hive, or that you know, one of the one of the beautiful theories I love is spaceship Earth Earth theory that we're we're on this spaceship which is Earth, plowing through the universe, and everybody's on it is should be crew, not passengers. There's nobody taking advantage, and unfortunately, when I thought about the hive, I was like, oh well, the hive starts to go starts to disintegrate once you have enough bad actors who who change the 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 goal of the hive etc and i just wanted to connect it to a great i mentioned that i interviewed ian mcgilchrist yesterday about the left and right hemisphere and one of the theories is that unfortunately we're becoming more and more mechanistic and to your point there there's not like no robot inside our head i used to think about this as a child and i think it was a cartoon i saw as a child where there was like robots inside your head deciding what to do and it was a french cartoon and um anyway yeah so i think that's one of the hopefully we're waking up to that and hopefully it's not too late and we haven't already destroyed the hive are you a a gaia hypothesis aficionado a witch gaia Gaia. hypothesis yeah so lovelock Mm-hmm. yeah I, I, 101 I, years old going yeah strong. i've been trying to get him for the show man if you have <laughs> yeah, if yeah. You, i send him a birthday card every year wow, wow. well I, I mean i don't know him yeah but like i was like 99 i had to send him and then he's like 100 I just, that's like i know how old he is because i try to send him a card every year awesome. um yeah he's amazing he's amazing so the guy hypothesis like in in one sentence says that the earth behaves like a self-regulating organism that uh, holds itself conducive. It, it, it says things like somehow there is 21% of oxygen in the air and it doesn't ever seem to change. And the oceans have maintained a certain level of salinity for all this time. And that doesn't seem to be changing. And the sun is changing in size, but the earth's climate doesn't seem to. And somehow the earth is self-regulating. And What's interesting about it is uh, that's how most people think of the theory. And all that's true, but the, the, the real way I think kind of to think about it is that the Gaia 
makes life and life in turn makes Gaia. If you took all the life off earth, it would stop raining. Like it wouldn't be any more rain anymore. And it would, it would life on the planet has changed it. And it in turn supports life, which in turn changes it. It's like a, it's like a beetle living on a, 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 some insect that only feeds off one flower and the flower needs the insect pollinated and the insect needs the flower. And, and you can think of that insect on that flower as just one creature. It's distributed, but it's really just one creature, one kind of self-contained unit of uh, functionality. And that's what we are with earth. Uh, according to the Gaia hypothesis is we are, um, we are part of it. It was we're not like we we're kind of living here, but we are part of what makes Earth Earth. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I don't. I'm writing a book about superorganisms, so obviously I'm reading about it. But uh, it, it's the kind of thing you just have to just think about for a long time. Like, to, how could that be? And by the way, another great, and he passed away last December, was E.O. Wilson. He was due to come on the show. That's how oh, I found out. Really? Yeah, he passed away on his book, oh, Emergence. Yeah, no, no. Uh, unbelievable books, just beautiful. I, oh, I agree. Yeah. I kind of wish, um, I don't know if at his uh, funeral, if his pallbearers were dressed like ants, but that, you know how they carry their ants out. <laughs> and I didn't know if like he put something in there, like, I want to be. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. He, he, his books are just wonderful. But there's a there's a great, uh, if you don't know it, a, a beautiful, uh, one of my favorite Alan Watts quotes uh, is about the transactional nature of, of the uh, organism and the environment. And I have it here in front of me. He said the relationship between the organism and the environment is transactional. The environment grows the organism and the organism creates the environment. I absolutely one of my favorite quotes and, and it counts for any any environment. But uh, anyway, man, we, we'd be talking forever. I want to get back to <laughs> the narrative of your brilliant book. This one, not the, not the next one. But, uh, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's me, man. I, I'll go down any. Uh, I'm, I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm like one of the ants kind of going, hey, let, let's go down here. <laughs> You're like anyone. They actually release a ferment. I don't know if you know this. They release a ferment to go. This area has been explored already. Don't waste your energy. And it informs the rest of, of the other ants as well. Sorry they don't know that. what they're doing. That's the smart. Yeah. It's amazing. Amazing. So, so let's get back because um, a couple of things. One of the ones was I, I thought about how through this fortunate events for, for us, for humanity and, and where we are and why we're, why we're the, the alpha animal, if you want to call it that. And I thought about the movie, The Planet of the Apes, and I was kind of going, that's kind of what that's about. It wasn't us, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was this other species of, of ape. We, we, okay, we went, we went down one of those pheromone paths with the ants and, and uh, there's a smell in the air that you've done enough here, Aiden. <laughs> so one of the things we talked about there was how ants and other animals invented so much of agriculture that we eventually learned about later on. But you talk about not only the synchronicity of, of language and art and music all across the planet, but also happened for agriculture. I thought this was in interesting as well, because agriculture is essentially a technology. We all learned it at the same time. Yes, we all did. Um, 10,000 years ago, call it. Some people say we started growing grain not, to, uh, not for bread, but for beer. 
and that that's what uh, made us settle down was not uh, you know not the normal narrative. It was like, okay, we want this is good stuff, and like we're going to grow big fields and we're going to make a lot of this. Uh, and you're right, that happened all over the world. We don't know if knowledge of it spread or if there are a lot of things like that. We don't know if knowledge of them spread very quickly or if um, they were developed independently. You know, writing systems look like they were developed independently because they're so different. Like some of them um, use symbols to represent sounds, chocolate, you know, and other ones use symbols to represent entire words. And they're very different. Like, so it doesn't look like those came from the same thing, the way that you mentioned cognates a minute ago, the way cognates might have all come from the same spoken word language. But when you have to sit down, okay, now we got to write this down. You may come up with completely different ways to do it. I think the fascinating thing about the cognate thing. So cognates are words that are the same in multiple languages or are similar in multiple languages. You can tell they're kind of related. Uh, maybe you've noticed that <clears throat> most cultures, words from mother began with mm. Uh, so the idea behind cognates uh, is that, you know, you can kind of see uh, the language forming and spreading. And the thesis is that if, if you knew every cognate, let's say, for instance, you found that the word cat was the same in all kinds of languages and the word dog was different in all languages, then you would say, well, obviously the original language was in a place that had cats and no dogs because, and, and, and it isn't just cats and dogs. They like figure out windows, roofs, shores, lakes, oceans, trees. Like you study every one of those words, figure out which ones of the cognates exist for and which ones they don't. And you can pick maybe the place and a lot of people have done it. And, uh, you know, I mean, you don't get down to like a city block. It's not GPS or anything, but, uh, uh, usually it works out to like the steps of the caucus, that area might be where this all happened because presumably the, whoever awoken and could paint those walls and all of that also started speaking eventually. And that was the mother tongue. One of the things that you sparked for me was you, you made me remember something. So when, when, when I was a kid, my, my mom said to me, uh, Aiden, you know, when you have an idea, you have to act on it, because it's been dropped into the universe. And lots of other people are having that same idea. And it's about the person who actually does something about it. And, and I, I'm not not as proficient as you as a writer, I've written one book, but I have loads of other ideas for others. And I'm keep kind of going like the sands of time are running out, somebody else is going write, to write my book. And you talked about an amazing paper called Are in inventions inevitable and a tract from 1922, to it lists out 148 major inventions and discoveries that happened at the same time around the world. And these include, for example, two men filing for a telephone patent, just three hours apart. I thought that was absolutely fascinating stuff. I love that, because especially that it's a 100 year old paper. Uh, I love finding stuff like that, that is just almost lost to the mist of time and being able to, because, you know, the ideas are still like amazing. I don't, I don't have an opinion on that. Like, I wish I did on how that happens, or you could say it's part of uh, the superorganism thinking, or 
I mean, there's a lot of people who've tried to explain it, and I don't, I don't actually have have an expl- a good one for it, like right <laughs> it or was, wrong. It, it was think. only a comment, and it was only a comment. But uh, let's move on to the stories we tell ourselves. And at this point in the book, in our narrative of the book, we have language, but we do not have stories yet. Okay, and you say stories are a narrative construct in which sequences of meaningfully related events unfold through time. Those stories are built out of language and languages are required for stories. Earlier, we looked at how the primary purpose of language was not communication, but thought stories are the same way. And you distinguish here between told stories and the stories in our minds. This distinction is extremely important for the building this story. I was afraid when I talked about a book about stories, the mental image people would get is around a campfire. And of course, we do want to uh, eventually get there, but that isn't uh, where they started. But very quickly, it looks like we started telling um, telling stories. The book gives 20 uh, purposes of told stories. Between you and me, there's a secret 21st one in the epilogue. Um I so haven't got there yet, Mike. I know. <laughs> that's where the secret one is. Uh, the 20 um, purposes of stories, the, the spoken stories. Uh, well, actually, I do want to actually tell that story now of the Tet language and uh, the constellation. So when you think about the first stories we told, it would be hard to know what they were. There are linguists who are able to you to look at words used in them and figure out how old. What they do very very clever. They they find different versions of stories around the world, and then they look at what they have in common and they figure out like how old the story is. It's really a genetic technique about you could take two creatures and look at how similar their DNA is, and the closer their DNA is, uh, the closer they are related. And the same thing with stories. And they've been able to go. Uh, back five to six thousand years and they say you know the devil and the smith it's a faustian tale is probably the oldest story jack and the beanstalk is probably five thousand years old and uh and and so forth but but when you really want to get back uh, five thousand years is kind of nothing like if we've been speaking for fifty thousand like that's just kind of like what, what was on tv last week or something what how far back can they go and, and one of my favorite tales from the book is about the um, constellation, the Big Dipper, and you know what it looks like. It's kind of four four stars that form the ladle, and then there's three for the handle. I'll, I'll show it for those of you watching. I'll drop it in here so you can Excellent. see it right now. Bring it to mind. And I guess it's and anyway, all over the world, this is seen as a bear with a uh, with a long tail. And very unusual. And this is even in places that don't have bears. And it's very strange because bears don't have long tails. Uh, like, why in the world would you say it's a long-tailed bear? However, and so that's kind of the Western European tradition is it's a bear with a long tail. In the Up in Siberia, there are, I think, the, the Tet people. And uh, they see bears. like, And they look up at that constellation. They still see a bear. But they say, no, it's a bear being chased by three hunters. And then if you look at the middle hunter, there's a little faint star next to it. You have to squint to see. And they say, ah, that's a bird showing the hunters where the bear is. It's a helper bird. Okay, all good. Then uh, uh, 17,000 years ago, give or take, land bridge forms between Siberia and Alaska. 
And we think only 70 people came across, which I think is big, like ever. Only 70 people crossed it. And again, you can look at the genetic diversity of people um, pre-1492. And you can say, well, how closely are they all related? Um, and so then those 70 people crossed, they populated the Americas. And if and in, in multiple traditions, if you say, what is that constellation? Uh, they say, that's a bear. And then they say, but it's uh, being chased by three hunters. And that middle star is a helper bird showing them where the bear is. And so it's like, wow. Not only are there words in Navajo that are the same in Tet, like cognates, so you actually can say words out loud that you can be confident were said 15,000 years ago. But the, the, if, if that story had come over in 1492, they would say, that's a long-tailed bear. Don't know why, but it's a long-tailed bear. Uh, but they didn't. They said it's a bear being chased by hunters. And so we know that to be like a 15,000-year-old story. And then we can even go back further, like all the way back, we think 50, 60, 70,000 years ago when, uh, when they would count stars, they would see a different number of them because they've slightly changed orientation in that amount of time. So we, you know, we can even go back um, that far and, and, and see more of these stories kind of in the earliest days. And so what I started doing in the book was saying, you know, I guess it kind of makes sense if there is Agora. Again, it's a metaphor or a literal thing. 50,000 years ago, it woke up. It was no longer an erectus. It was like this thing like us. And what was the first thing it would have noticed? It would have laid on its back at night and looked up at the sky and seen that, you know, 4,000 stars in the Milky Way and, and, and start making up stories about them. Like, of course you would and that's why i think all of our very oldest stories are about stars and the sky because that was like the first thing and then later you know later we start living in cities and that requires kind of different rules to get along brand new rules so we get aesop's fables and then you know we live at times where there are strangers uh and strangers are like, you know, you're not used to seeing strangers. You're used to being around your 120. Now you regularly see people you don't know. And that brings about additional stories and so forth. So you can actually kind of look at the litany of stories we tell ourselves for 50,000 years and, and say uh, that's sort of the story of Agora. And, you know, it, it brought back memories just like you with the, the serendipitous beekeeping element and you know you even said about you know for example growing up on a farm and being chased by the bull and all this understanding of tenses will come to in a second but the the one that came back to me a similar thing I went to I did French in college and we studied old nursery rhymes and I remember actually being in class going oh man when is this ever going to be relevant and and the ways these things become relevant in your future is just incredible. And one of the ones for me was uh, Le Petit Chaperon Rouge, which is Little Red Riding Hood. The multitude of versions of that. And it was to scare little girls, like you said, away from don't go off into the woods. It's dangerous in there. And why I share all that is the importance of stories because they create, they warn you or they create culture, as you said, for the super, super organism is so important. And that's why 
we started to tell these stories and pass them on to each other, etc. I'm throwing loads in here and feel free to grab onto anything. One of the things I loved that you talked about was the monarch butterfly and how it travels around the world. And I thought about this almost like a relay race of passing the story from from one to the next and generation to generation. So in the absence of written word, this was extremely important. There's a whole lot there. So the monarch is, you know, it's migrates from Canada to Mexico, but it takes four generations to get there. So some monarch flies and then uh, lays megs and those hatch and the caterpillars and become butterfly and they keep going and they keep going. The fourth generation lives like five times longer than either of the other three. And so it's like, well, first of all, how? And then second, you know, we don't even know when the, when the caterpillar becomes goo, it does not stay a caterpillar in that cocoon. It becomes goo and then the goo reforms into a butterfly. How does it like remember all that stuff? Like it seems to retain memories. So it makes it all the way there to Mexico. And then it flies back and it'll stop at the same milkweed plants that it hit going down. And I don't know how they do that. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, well studied. I mean, it must be written somewhere uh, inside of them in a way we don't we don't know. It's really humbling because what it suggests, you know, we kind of think everything relating to cognition that goes on in us is in our head, is in our brain. And I don't know. I don't think I believe that anymore. Like I think. Uh, you know, there's cellular memory. I think there's epigenetics. I think all kinds of stuff gets written to our DNA that we don't know anything. We don't understand. I think there are all different ways that the body is like storing information and retrieving it that we haven't even begun to scratch. And it's not just like all in our head. Uh, I never m- miss an opportunity to mention the monarch. That's beautiful. We plant, we plant uh, milkweed in our backyard for them because uh, I don't know. I don't know. They, uh, I'm like, yeah, this goes, they don't even know, like you said, oh, oh, the generation that lives longer, the fourth generation that lives so much longer. They think it may be being signaled by the height the sun comes to in the horizon to tell it, okay, it's late in the year and therefore something tweaked in it and it lives much longer. It's amazing because, you know, genetically we're virtually, our closest genetic relative is the chimpanzee. And they're very similar to us. And yet, think about how different we are. Like, first of all, our lifespans are twice as long. So you tweak one or two little genes somewhere, and we live twice as long. And they're, like, massively stronger than we are, right? Like, I don't want to get in a fight with a chimp. Uh, And those things are, like, all muscle. And obviously, mentally, we're very different. Like, all that from these little tweaks of these little small genetic things you know when you read the pieces of trivia that say you share 50 percent of your dna with a mushroom that's largely true like you can take that largely at face value the coolest thing i know is that all life on this planet this is a mark ridley um quote a matt ridley quote all life is one everything is evidently descended from this one luca the last universal common ancestor. And uh, so you have like a cousin who's a cactus in Bethesda, Maryland, and you have a you have another cousin who's a 
who's a worm in uh, south of France, and you have a, another cousin who's a mushroom in Finland, and it's all your relatives. People think I'm weird. Let's see our half our audience disappearing. <laughs> I, I, I live that way. I, I see... I see wonder in, in most of these things because it changes how you attend to the world. It really does. For example, you know, as you say in the book, snail trail, that's communicating. That's communication of snails or, um, for example, the, the ants, like I talked about around the area or the tree, they're all playing a role in, in yourself. But also then you take that into your fellow human and you tend to you tend to treat people better because you know it's going to reflect back on you. You know, in some way, it's going to affect you. And one of the things you mentioned there was about, um, for example, epigenetics, etc. We had Bruce Lipton on the show. We had the brilliant Robert Sapolsky, and and he said something that was absolutely amazing: is that if you come from an area that experienced pestilence in the past you're going to be more xenophobic and less tolerant of outsiders because it's in your genes. It's been passed on from generation to generation. Just be careful. And when you when you understand that, it gives you so much more empathy. And you know where I'm going with this. Empathy is a huge part of stories because there's three main components you tell us about here that we need to think about when we're talking about creating a story. One is tenses. The other is understanding the mind of the other. And the final one then that we'll talk about is also causal chains. I'll throw them all as a bucket and please take it whichever way you like. You know, the basics of Jack and the Beanstalk, I assume everybody knows. The, they're, they're, they're broke. They send Jack to go trade the family cow. He meets somebody who gives him five magic beans for the cow. Then the parents throw the beans out the window and it grows into a stalk and he climbs it. And what's fascinating about it is I don't know the last time I read that story or even heard it. And yet uh, the, the series of events is uh, like we're just kind of uniquely suited to remember things like that, like how A leads to B leads to C leads to D leads to E. And that is uh, part of that, seeing the, the future and remembering the past. And that's this uh, big part of, of uh, the, the nature of stories themselves. I'm trying to think about all the things that got cut out of that. I had uh, all the stuff about the Greek gods and did people actually believe those stories? Like, did they actually believe those gods were in existence? Uh, I had all this stuff about the Hayes Code, which is the idea that if you tell stories that are violent and all of that, does that make people more violent? And and all these things, trying to understand uh, the impact that these stories have on us. And, uh, you know, or, you know, there are these famous uh, studies they did when, different villages in India got cable TV and because of that, they got kind of more little places got like city programming. And so they could see uh, daytime shows that had women uh, in leadership roles. And then they looked at, they would go back and three years later, talk to the, those women about, did they want boys more than girls and all these things. And their, their attitudes uh, had changed um, in, that, in that case, you know, for the better towards equality. And so it's like every story you hear, is is going to affect you somehow and uh and that's a pretty 
I don't know. That's a pretty kind of worrisome thing to think about and, uh, and, and an empowering thing as well that you kind of like, we're so tuned for them. We, we take them with us. And then I don't know if you remember the part about uh, flashbulb moments. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I have it here. Actually, I was going to tee you up. So I, I'll actually just quickly mention it. So I love this. So thank you for doing it. This is the story of about 9-11, but the one study that found that three years after the 1986 Challenger explosion, not one of the 42 people being studied remembered the event the same way they had earlier. And I thought of it that, <laughs> you know, when you're like, maybe on a road trip with your friends and somebody's there going, hey, you remember the time? And you're like, that's not how it happened. And you often think maybe they're lying or they're exaggerating in some way, but you describe, no, no, this is a human bias. I wrote it, but even when I was writing it, it was like, I know where I was in 1986 when the Challenger exploded. Like, I know it. And uh, like I know it. I mean, it's... I know who I looked at. I know the words that came out of my mouth. I know what he said. I went to my chemistry class. She didn't believe it. I got to go to the library to get the TV so we could all walk. I mean, like, I remember it. And then this is saying, no, I probably actually don't. And so the way the setup is, is um, there are supposedly things like flashbulb moments where there are events that happen to you that are so dramatic, you remember them forever. Like, you'll never forget it. And then there are, of course, ones at a societal level that presumably we all uh, remember. I mean, this has been studied for a long time, as far back as Pearl Harbor. So you think in the United States, you know, Pearl Harbor was attacked and it was a surprise and everybody remembered where they were when they heard about the attack. And then you get um, the Kennedy assassination and then, you know, one after the other. And, uh, and what we would find is that when you go back, people change their stories about where they were. But then when 9-11 happened, there were some researchers at an American university who were like, you know what? We have a chance to actually study this on a real thing. So the next day, they gathered up students and said, tell us everything that happened to you. Um, tell us everything. Where were you? What? Everything that you can remember. And then they wrote it all down. And they would go back to them. Um, I'm going to get the times wrong, but they would go back. So one group a week later, one group a month later, and one group a year later, something like that. And they found that uh, they have different accounts. And what's interesting is the accounts, it doesn't really matter how far out it is. When uh, you ask them, like it almost changes immediately. But what happens is the closer you are to the event, the more confident you are that you remember it correctly. Like you hear me saying, I know where I was in 86. I know it. Uh, I mean, I'm sure a month after that, I would have been like, I'm bet my life on it. And even to this day, I wrote that, like I read that, I believe it, uh, but I can't internalize that and, and tell myself I'm, I'm wrong about what I remember about 1986. You know, it also reminded me of, of, juror duty, you know, I, I thought about the Shawshank Redemption, you know, and, and there's been real stories of people who've been put away. And when you see this happens, juries all the time as well, like, it's scary, it really is scary. But the positive side, I know one of the reasons I write a weekly article, and I write for a few reasons, one is to absorb and 
ferment and marinate information in in my own way as much as is possible. But the other then is to is to reframe stories that I hear. And I think that I mean, that's the basis of NLP neuro linguistic programming is the, the, the best way to deal with a traumatic event or an event that wasn't didn't go your way is to reframe it, you know, and I think that's why it's so important for us to tell stories, but also to our children, how you frame things, how you question, how you invite their curiosity and query, etc. It's just so important. And you give the list of 21. <laughs> I look out for number 21, 21 reasons why stories exist in the first place. And I'd love your thoughts on this. But I, I thought we'd do this as a final piece. I'm going to play now for a moment, the sound of a campfire. <laughs> because this is so important for humans. And I'm going to show on the screen, a burning fire as well. And for those of you watching us on YouTube, you'll see that this is so important. This again, it felt to me, this was like our inbuilt nest building or axe building, <laughs> that this is part of who we are. And as you said, it makes you think about well, the material you consume is really important, you have to be careful what you let in how you surround yourself, who you surround yourself with, where you work, all these things have a dramatic effect on you, your own superorganism. Yeah, I'm going to back the real way up. Because you were just talking about eyewitness things. Have you seen the uh, little video where there's uh, two groups of basketball players, one's with dark shirts and one's with light shirts, and they're, the, I think the light shirts are passing the basketball among themselves. and And then at the end of it, you're supposed to count how many times they pass the ball. And then at the end of it, they ask a question that uh, I don't want to spoil it, but people uh, tend to get wrong. And uh, it's a really humbling, a really humbling thing. Uh, what what you're talking about is some research that, I don't know, it's kind of cool. I, I Not only did I, uh, you know, was I a Boy Scout learning bookkeeping, but uh, I camped a lot, you know, and and there's something about, I love campfires and there's something about when you build the campfire, it illuminates a certain radius. And then, then it's like, there's a canopy of black that you can't see outside of and So you're in this little bubble of light and warmth and you're connected to other people. Uh, and I, I and what's, I, I know where, where you're going. I'll get to that really quickly, but no rush. <laughs> it's been really good uh, studies done about um, in societies uh, that that have a lot of like communal gathering, uh, how the stories change that they tell throughout the day. And so during the day, you tell very pragmatic stories about the price of corn and where, you know, their good fishing is or, or whatever. But at night, you tell very different stories and they're about the past and their uh, uh, legends and tall tales and uh, the history of your people and all of that. And, and then so that the, the, the stories tell, but if that weren't enough, physiologically, your blood pressure goes down and your heart slows and you relax. And I think the reason you're going to play the video is it was a guy who was like, I wonder if you really have to be by the campfire. Could you just watch a video of the campfire? And then for that matter, 
why not just listen to the sound of the campfire? And uh, what he found was that it um, still conveyed a benefit, but a, a declining one. Like, the closer you are to the real fire, the better. And where, where you, what moved you about that? Because that's the setup. What was it about that that really like caught your eye? There's a couple of things. So I, 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 firstly, I, you told me, Byron has four kids and you were telling me about how you encourage them and how you lean into their curiosities, etc. So one of the things I think is so important in the world, if we're think of ourselves as like beehives, is how we encourage and, and listen to and in a way, like you talk about socially program those people who are responsible for it, like our children, it's so, so important. And we were often so busy trying to go out and get some honey on the table that we forget about that. And and it's one of the one of the things and, and I don't want to make anyone feel guilty about that. That's just, you know, it's it's a belief of mine. But one of the things I, I, I do with my kids is I bring them um to the area where, where I grew up and we have a fire and we we just light a fire and I see them and they just stare in the fire and I just it's like a moment it's like meditation I just see them go into trances and think and I just let them alone and stuff like that so when you spoke about that in the book it brought all that rushing back to me and because act one is about stories I just I just think it's so important the 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 stories we tell ourselves the programming we're telling ourselves the writing of our own story, where we're the actual star of our own story, but also then how we're building the stories of those people around us. It's it's just such an important thing. And, and you know, it's one of the gifts of being a writer. And hopefully with this podcast is one of the reasons I, I share great writers all the time. You know, I didn't put any stories. People are very nice because they say I love the storytelling in the book. And then I think to myself, I actually didn't put any stories in the book. I, I really wanted to, but when I'm having to cut out a bunch of stuff, um, they they all went because I got really interested in old stories and folk tales and the oldest ones and and getting books and reading them. They're so readable. And uh, if it's okay, I'm going to tell one. I've never done this before, and I'm not even sure I can recall it. It's the one I wanted to put in the book, and I don't even know why. It just I like it. Beautiful. I've never, We're honored, uh, man. We're honored. Thank you. I've never done this. So, it, and I'm not going to like ham it up. Don't worry. But it's um, once upon a time, there was this guy and uh, he was, he was married and um, he decided he went to his wife and he said, I want to go on a quest. And she said, what is it you are questing for? And he said, I want to find truth, capital T. And she said, and when will you be back? And he said, I will be back in one year and one day. And she says, and if you don't return, he goes, I have already made a will and I have left everything to you. And she's like, knock yourself out. You go do that. I'll see you in a year and a day. So he starts, gets his walking stick and he starts walking village to village. And he, he meets people and he says, I am looking for truth. And he finally finds this old guy who says, you know, I actually know where she is. Uh, she lives, uh, truth lives up in, um, a cave, you go to this next town and then there's a mountain and you go to the mountain and up in the cave and then you go into the cave and, and she's in the back and she'll see you. And he says, well, thank you. So he goes to the next town, he climbs a hill, he goes in there and sure enough, he walks in and there's this woman who's like so old, like a wrinkle, like enough skin for two women. She's just like one woman and, uh, and she's got like one tooth left 
and she's bent over and he said, are you truth? And she says, yes, I am. And he said, I would like to know everything, you know, and she said, well, I'll tell you what, um, you can stay here and, uh, I don't teach you what to know. So he spent, um, months with her and she taught him everything. And as he's leaving, he turns to her and he says, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to thank you. Is there anything I can do for you in return? He, and she said, she thought about it. And she said, yeah, yeah. If you meet anybody who asks about me, tell them I'm young and beautiful. <laughs> I don't know why that one just like, I love it, man. I love it. I don't know. Unfortunately, uh, it's like so many espoused values we see in society today and in organizations. Uh, we're a great place for innovation and leadership and looking after our people, except when things get tough. I thought, man, we, we'd uh, thank you for sharing that story. <laughs> I'm going to tell my kids and go, what's wrong with that tonight? That's my story for tonight. So that's the gift I'm going to pass on like the moth uh, for the, the monarch from one to the next. One more quick thing, if Please. I can. Uh, Let's cue up why stories leads to dice. So I got to leave the people with a little teaser, leave yeah, one more, yeah. get them to come back next week. Exactly. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't be doing a good job with storytellers. So what I have here is a quote from towards the end of Act One to tee us up for part two as a teaser. You say, even today, our primary use of stories is still mental. We use them to plan for the future from the next few minutes to years or even decades. But that raises an interesting question. How do we know what will happen in the future? Sure, we have the ability to imagine what might happen. But how do you know what will actually happen? As Aristotle writes, you tell us, nobody can narrate what has not yet happened. But you ask, or can they? So the next section is uh, called dice. And I used, I'm not going to launch into it. This is 30, 45 seconds. I use dice uh, to represent probability. And the reason I picked dice, everything else that I could is because dice are prehistoric. They predate um, writing. And so they're prehistoric. And that means, do you remember why they have pips on them instead of numbers? Oh, you haven't gotten to that part. So the reason they have dots on them instead of having numbers on them is because they were invented before we had numbers. Oh, we wow. dots. Isn't that something? And awesome. there's going to be a um, a visual aid next week. And have you, maybe you've seen one of these. It's called a Galton board. And uh, the idea is, I'm about to flip it. And there's a bunch of BBs, little pieces of metal here. And they're going to start falling. And what happens is they can fall and they're going to, they're going to hit a piece of plastic and then go to the left or the right. And then they're going to hit another one and they go to the left or the right. And what happens is every time you flip this thing, you get a normal curve in the middle. Wow. And you can do this every day of your life. And uh, if you don't get that, the universe is about to end because the world does not work like that. And that is the basis for how you predict the future it is understanding what randomness is. I'm absolutely intrigued. I hope you are too. It's a great book. We, by the way, I just want to make sure this is clear for those of you who may not w think you need to buy it. You do because we touched a tiny bit of it, maybe 5%. It's out in August. So we'll be publishing this in July. So it's not out. And I don't know when in Europe, actually, Byron. But um, do you know, is it August as well? Yeah, August as well. 
I have, as I said, two advanced copies there that, I, that I'm very, very happy to share that Byron kindly gave us. Byron, for people who want to find out more about you and find out more about your other books, because The Fourth Age is a cracking book as well. We only did an hour on that and we could have done 40. Where can they find you? I'm easy to find. I'm Byron Reese everywhere. I'm um, Byron Reese at Gmail if you want to email me. I'm ByronReese.com. Uh, but you can find the books on, you can pre-order them. It's, it's a shame. People don't pre-order books a lot, but the pre-orders are used by the publisher as a signal to how much to promote it. So they really mean a lot to me. And those uh, things you're giving away, the publishers don't give us, but like a hundred of them. So I don't know how you managed to get three, but uh, that's, uh, that's something else. So hold on <laughs> to that. I plan to amount to something someday and they may be worth something. One is for me, man. One is for me. So that, that's, that's my one. It's, I've NFT'd it already. I've, I've minted it. But it, it's been an absolute, absolutely joy speaking to you. Sorry for bringing us down so many uh, ant uh, cul-de-sacs, etc. It was, it was, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you about to you about anything. Author of Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think: How Humans Learn to See the Future and Shape It. Friend of the show, Byron Reese. Thank you for joining us for Act One. Thank you. The Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com and I'll see you very soon for Act 2 of Stories, Dice and Rocks That Think with Byron Reese.